This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Nika Namdi was recently profiled in Baltimore Magazine, where I learned about the innovative and dynamic initiative she's leading which holds tremendous promise for legacy communities around the country, confronting decades of disinvestment, and is a story that deserves national attention on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're ex- excited to be joined by Nika Namdi, who is the founder of Fight Blight Baltimore, which is an economic, environmental, and social justice initiative led by the con- community and informed by data to address this, this big issue of blight. Um, and, um, we always like to get to know people before we start talking to them. So Nika, where did you grow up and what was your path to this line of work? I mean, your bio is pretty diverse. You have a lot of different interesting experiences, but what ended up, um, getting you involved in this? What was sort of your spark moment? Well, no problem. So I was actually born in, in DC. Um, we moved to Baltimore, um, when I was about three. I was raised in, in Baltimore County, primarily in, in Essex and Parkville. Um, but then when I was in high school, we moved to um, Emerson Village, and I had an opportunity to attend and graduate from Baltimore Polytechnic Institute. And so, you know, from there, I went to Morgan State University. So I'm, I'm a Baltimore girl all the way uh, through and through. And so my path to the work is a little bit... Um, I guess, circular in that I've always had a uh, a very research focus. My, my favorite places in the world was like a, a library. In fact, my first like summer job or afternoon job was at Baltimore County Library, <laughs> Baltimore County Library when I was in middle school. And so I've always had an interest in like finding out what's behind something like why things are um, the way they are. I'm also an artist. I've done traditional West African dance for, you know, since I was in middle school as well. But I come from a family of engineers. So I left Poly and went to Morgan to study um, initially industrial engineering because that was what my older brother did. And then I moved into um, information systems and, and sciences. And so I worked for a long time. I still do as a systems engineer um, focused on software and systems development. But in the in the process uh, of that, I bought a home in Baltimore City. So I live in, in Heritage Crossing, which is in old West Baltimore. But the, even Heritage Crossing is the result of, you know, the 1994 um, HUD versus Thompson suit where public housing residents sued for the right to basically return. And the result of that suit was this um, development, which used to be public housing, had to have some public housing elements, which we do, we have rental units here, but we also have low to moderate income um, homeownership units. And so that enabled me to purchase a home in Baltimore, you know, right out of, right out of college. And even then, the neighborhood Upton and Harlem Park had some issues with blight. So that's been, you know, 20 years ago. But over the last 20 years, it has it's gotten progressively worse. And so, you know, my foray into work really started years ago in just engaging 
with, you know, the homeowners association, just trying to develop community as well as having, you know, performed um, in dance companies in the city. We've always, there's always a community element to that. So I've been doing community type work for a long time. Um, but what really got me into, you know, working blight and community development issues was um, Mother's Day week in 2016. I witnessed um, three children um, on bikes, two on foot, uh, walking down Fremont Avenue, which is near my home. And there was a major like four brownstone demolition that was occurring, but there was no gate, no sign, no danger signs, no, like nothing. There, just, there was mounds of debris where the builders used to be, the old gaping hole where the basements were, and then like the caterpillars, so, you know, the extraction machines. And I thought like, man, if one of these kids lose control of the bike, or if they see these mounds of debris or the um, construction equipment and think, hey, this is a playground because there's literally no public playground space around here, they could get hurt. And then what? And so I started, you know, researching why those properties were getting demolished. And then that became why were they in bad condition? That became why do we have so many properties in, you know, bad condition? And then that, you know, kind of spiraled into why do our communities um, look the way that they do? And so yeah. that is how Fight Like Be More was born. It's so interesting because sometimes we talk to people from all different backgrounds in life and some of them it's like a progressive spark, right? Where it's like things built, their parents showed them things, they learned about things and then all of a sudden they realized this is something I want to do or they ended up doing it as work. It seems like in your situation, it literally is actually a moment. You can literally point, point to a moment and what a... What a tragic moment, too, because when you think about, you know, other communities in Baltimore, um, you know, and this is kind of hyper local for a larger audience, but, uh, you know, a predominantly white neighborhood like a Roland Park. Can you imagine a demolition happening there with no fences it would, being put It up? wouldn't happen. It and wouldn't it, happen. In fact, I contacted in the process of, of learning, I contacted about that particular incident. Um the folks at the demolitions department, which sits inside of the Department of Housing and Community Development. And it took me some time to get a meeting, but I finally got a meeting with several staff members. And I said to them in the meeting, I'm like, because they were trying to kind of put me off, like it wasn't a big deal. And I was like, if this was happening in Bolton Hill, which is in the same city council district, sure. as where I live, if it was up on the hill, if this was in Canton, which isn't that far, you know, Y'all would be on top of this, you know, they, and they basically was like, it wouldn't happen. They they really said that they would have 100 complaints to my one complaint. And so they would have to respond differently. And I'm like, why does it take more than one complaint about dangerous conditions? What is the difference? It, you right. know, and so I started to see then. What, you know, we, we know because of red line and what we, we know because of restrictive covenants, we know because of these things, many, much of which started in Baltimore. Baltimore's a city of first and, and many of them are not so, not so good that these things, there is a difference in how communities are treated based on who lives in those communities. Yeah. Which is perhaps maybe, I mean, there's a lot of 
tragedy around all that but that's even one of the most tragic pieces is that still to this day there's a different treatment and so it requires and almost to their point it's like well a lot of people need to complain so i guess in a sense you have to have an organization equipped to do the complaining if they're not gonna safety in theory shouldn't be something that is only done when people complain but if that's going to be the response then that's going to be the response so what is what does fight blight baltimore do and then maybe even before that how do you define blight? Because it's sort of this amorphous thing. Like, what do you define? Because I think sometimes blight has also been used as a as a weapon to say, well, this neighborhood's bad. We need to knock it over. We just need to go in and plow this neighborhood over. It's blight. And so yeah. how do what is blight as far as you're you're concerned? <clears throat> so blight, um, as we define it, is the presence specifically in concentrations of vacant, abandoned, dilapidated, underutilized and misutilized properties and community. And so the first three are self-explanatory. But, for example, the, the last two underutilized. So Baltimore City, because of population decline, has many school buildings, right, that are actually being surplus they're being sold or they're being offered for sale because the schools have closed and the city has no use for them. And so those are underutilized buildings. They are blight because they could be being used to, you know, house people, to do incubation of businesses, to do any type of community function, right? which might enable safety, which could enable employment, which could enable enable education. So that is a form of blight because the building is not being used. Um, it is is being underutilized or not used at all, right? When it could be used for good use, could be used for purpose and community, right? The, the second one, misutilized. So if you look at the roughly maybe one mile stretch um, in Baltimore from on Pennsylvania Avenue from Martin Luther King to North Avenue. There are no less than four or five liquor stores or outlets where you can purchase liquor, cigarettes, things of that nature. And again, no issue, a neighborhood, a healthy, vibrant neighborhood should have liquor stores, lounges, things of that nature. But in a neighborhood that also has no full service grocery store, because the Save-A-Lot that does exist in this neighborhood is not what we would call a full-service grocery store. It does not have a bakery. It does not have, um, it doesn't have a meat section. Like, oh, it has a meat section, but it doesn't have a butcher. It doesn't have a seafood section. Um, and though it does sell produce, it's not what we would call a full-service grocery store. How can you have no full-service grocery store but five liquor stores? So these are properties that could be used for other purpose in community that are being used, you know, over and over and often selling things that do not support the health and safety of community. So when we talk about blight, we're talking about all five of those um, vacant, abandoned, dilapidated, misutilized, and underutilized properties, specifically in concentrations in community. So that's how we define blight. What Fight Blight Be More does, we found that number one, a lot of folks, to your question about what blight is, don't understand what blight is. It don't understand what it is, don't understand more so what its impact is or how it came into being. 
even though we find that in different ways, people in community are working to implement their own solutions to it. And sometimes they need support surround, surrounding how to implement those solutions, how to engage with public officials, how to engage with you know developers, what we call developers or community developers, in order to get those solutions um, rolled out. And so our work really centers around educating people on what blight is and helping people in community that have, you know, high levels of blight to define for themselves how they want to remove the blight and what things they want in its place. Right. Because I feel like I was going to say, I feel like a lot of times and it's interesting you saying like educating people or giving them the tools to figure out what they want to come in its place or how they want to remove it, because it seems like the knee jerk reaction. And obviously we're a preservation group and we care about historic buildings, but we also understand not every building can be saved. And so Mm -hmm. demolition is part of it. But from my vantage point and seeing what's been done in a lot of these communities, it's like that's always the first answer. We'll just knock it all over. And sometimes there's no place, there's nothing that comes in its place or no plan for what comes next. And so demolition seems like it's one tool, but it's, it's a part of a whole suite of tools that should be used. And it seems like from what you've said and from what I've read too about Fight Blight Be More is that you're, it's not the only, it's not the only tool that you guys are emphasizing. It's actually the last tool that should be used, right? That's interesting. our, Our philosophy is, um, stabilization and and strategic demolition. Right. Like you, we understand that every building can't be saved. However, many of them can. These structures, some of them, if you're talking about some of the churches and industrial structures, um, even some of the houses in Old West Baltimore were built in, you know, the 1800s and early 1900s. They had good bones, right? The the brickwork, Baltimore is renowned in the world for its brickwork. In fact, some of the bricks from demolitions are collected and sold to create those um exposed brick walls in, in the in the Gucci in the Gucci rehabs. Um, <laughs> so these are buildings. They we, there's also a company called Sandtown Millworks that takes the joist, the wood out of buildings and repurposes them into very expensive um like living, I'm not living room, but furniture, like tables and chairs and things of that nature. So that tells you the quality of the construction of these properties. Therefore, many of them, probably most of them can be saved at least down to the studs and and the brickwork, right? And, And pulling out the rest of the internals. But what also demolition, number one, demolition, there's a whole history of how Blight, like you mentioned, was used to um, malign certain communities so that they could be, you know, bulldozed over for highways, for stadiums, for, you know, things that are deemed public use. So the intimate domain could be used to take the properties um, from folks. And that's not that these are still like people and they have to have a place to live. And they're in the communities, even though sometimes there are challenges surrounding the, the as-built environment, these are still vibrant communities where people live, where people love, where people, you know, learn, where they where they go to church or synagogue or mosque or or you know, honor their ancestors, whatever the person's particular, the people's particular spiritual practice is. And so 
when you just start demolishing stuff, number one, you lose the history. But also people lose their ties to each, you know, to each other and to families. Um, and it's particularly disturbing in a, in a place like Baltimore when there's such rich, rich Black history here because this is one of the first places that Africans were either enslaved or came here as indentured as indentured persons. So there's a, you know, there are the Caucus houses in Canton and Fells Point that people didn't even know was a whole thing, that people didn't even know that Black people were um, a part of the shipbuilding history here that are be- that are currently being preserved. But so much of that is lost when you just tear the building down. And then you tear the building down without a plan for what is to come, without talking to the people who live there. And so you have a situation like the pocket park on Stricker Street. So the governor, you know, did the project for um, program, which is about demolishing many houses. I think they wanted to do 5,000 houses in 10 years. So they demolished a block of houses on Stricker Street. And they installed this pocket park. And there's a picture in the Baltimore Sun of, of the governor sitting on the you know newly installed pocket park and talking about how great Project 4 was and how great these demolitions were. That was in 2016. I was just there last week because it's not that far from my house and took pictures. The pocket park is overgrown. The grass is almost to my hip. So it's like, what did you do? You just created, you transformed the blight from a building to a vacant lot. And that's all over Baltimore. And, you know, in Detroit, because blight isn't just a problem in Baltimore. It's Philly, it's Detroit, it's Chicago. You know, it's in many rural communities, specifically in the in the Delta, in the, in the Deep South. Um, we think of it as an urban problem because we hear about it mostly as an urban problem, but it's also a problem in rural America as well. But you knocking down the buildings and not putting anything in its place or not caring for the property after you're just creating a vacant lot. And we know new blight. (laughs) Yeah. New blight. And we know that vacant lots are problematic because there's a study out of either the university of Pittsburgh or the, uh, or university of Philadelphia that showed that people's hearts were raised. Their heart rate was elevated when they walked past vacant unkept lots that's a sign of stress and elevated heart rate and and these are the same neighborhoods where people already have issues with diabetes and hypertension and baltimore has three times the national rate of childhood asthma so overgrown weeds and vegetation is a trigger for asthma these are health issues so yes when you take a building down, you don't have to worry about bricks falling on people's head, which happened um, in the case of Thomas Lemon, who was killed sitting in his car by you know a blighted building that, that imploded. But you still could have a child die from an asthma attack because the vacant lot is unkept. Maybe this is a spot to take a break and then come back and talk about the, the successes that you've been having and, and where you hope to take this and what people around the country can learn from Um, your really inspiring work. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. 
You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we're joined by Nika Namdi, who is the founder and the creator behind Fight Blight Be More. Um, and we've been talking all about the issue, how they define blight, the tools that can be used to combat it, um, and, and how it's just as important to know what comes next after blight so that you don't just keep kind of creating the cycle. How have you been approaching the work? What kind of impacts are you seeing? Um, it's, it's difficult um, and overwhelming, an overwhelming field to be working in, but are you, are you happy with sort of where you're headed and, and what's, you know, what's ahead? So it's funny. I allow myself space to quit every day because it is extremely frustrating. I've also learned to um, divorce myself of the idea that the impacts of some of the things that I am doing, that we are doing in community will be seen, that I will see, that I will see or be able to experience it. So I think about this as um, seeding um, the soil for seven generations out. And so that helps me to, to kind of stay focused. Like you just may never see, <laughs> this seed may never sprout in your um, time, but there are things that we are, that we would qualify as, you know, successes. So for example, there are two, there were two blighted properties that I can see uh, in my comings and goings right in my neighborhood outside of the development that I live in. And I was able to purchase both of those properties and turn them into a youth um, focused community-based imagination, innovation, and incubation space called the Hag Hub. And we were able to host um, eight young people through our through Baltimore's youth work program um, three years ago to test the mobile application that we were designing at the time to help um, people in community report track, analyze um, data on blighted properties. And so, you know, like that is that was a big deal to be able to expose young people to, you know, software development, to have them do so while testing the app that, that we're, you know, we're developing, um, that the app that to, today is actually in beta development for January 2022 release. Um, and then, you know, so that's one thing that was that was really big, being able to to develop the app, being able to actually own some additional property in in community. That property, we are also in the process of doing a um, redevelopment because it's a house and a vacant lot, and we we have vision for it to be a state of the art um, space. So we're working, we're fundraising and working on that. Uh, we also have been able to really push one of the things that we found about why some of the properties become blighted has to do with Baltimore's tax sale. And as we could be here all day, but I'll simply say that in, in Baltimore, if you don't pay your property taxes, there's an annual sale where the, the city sells the debt to a third party to collect. And if you're unable to pay the debt then the interest and fees, including lawyers' fees, a thousand dollar debt this year is three 
$3,000 next year. And if you can't pay that $3,000, the thousand into the $3,000, then you are subject to tax sale foreclosure. And so, you know, people were walking away from their homes because they didn't understand a process that was causing blight. People aren't able to navigate the probate process to get their parents' um, house into their name after their parents' debt. That contributes to, to that because people aren't able to get the tax credits. And so we've been um, working with Merlin Volunteer Lawyer Service, Parity Homes, and the Robinson Group to launch the Stop Oppressive Seizures Fund, where we basically, over the last year, raised $100,000 to pay off the property tax debt of what we're calling our most precious homeowners. So those are homeowners who are 65 and older. Those are homeowners who are disabled. Those are homeowners who are low income and potentially have a tangled title situation. While we also um, advocated for the city to change its tax sale process. So that's been a big win um, over the last year. So we're seeing some successes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, being able to say that we're at 60 homes now, 60 homeowners that we paid their their property tax debt off is, you know, is a big is a big deal. There's there's much more to do. Um, but those are some of the the wins and successes that, that we're having. Yeah, and I you're 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 totally right. I mean, obviously Baltimore's tax sale process is is predatory at best. And it's it's some of these things that happen in the background and people then drive through neighborhood and go, well, it's blighted. And it's like, yeah, but it didn't happen by accident, right? No. And none of this happens by accident. And there's policy and bad policy that has driven this for decades. Um, you know, Preservation Maryland, our organization, has you know recently done some work in a community of color in Hagerstown. And it's all the same things that you're talking about. It's but it's it's a slightly smaller community. The same things happen, you know, in Cambridge on the Eastern Shore um, yeah. because these policies um, are pervasive and it's that systemic stuff that has to be addressed before you can even get to the broken window. Um, right. You know, that that sometimes is 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 what's hanging before us. So um, what's what's next for you guys? I mean, it seems like it's really been really ambitious growth. Are you, you, you mentioned that you have a full-time job. So this is just, I, you know, uh, just, oh, by the way, on the side, you're trying to change the nature of blight in Baltimore. But mm -hmm. is it, are, are you hoping to staff up? Are you hoping to be, you know, so you've got the, the work that you're doing on the systemic side and with property law and then actual redevelopment, where does it go from here? What do you hope to see with this organization? I used to ask, you know, what would be in five years, but with the pandemic, who knows what the next six months is going to look like, but, but where right. do, where do you, where are you guys hoping to be? What are you hoping to accomplish? So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, we are, I say we a lot because I don't do anything without, community collaborators. Um, and so we are still currently a staff of, of one, but we are hoping that with the release of the app in um, January 2022, we'll be able to um, start to staff up. We're actually looking to um, begin hiring um, over the next over the next several months. So we do hope to staff up. Um, I forgot to mention that in terms of wins and successes, Part of what the staff will be doing will be um, helping to socialize. We have a feature-length documentary um, called Displacing Your Vacants in the Village, which 
really explains the work that that we're doing and and tries to um, also project the vision for what we intend to be doing going forward. So in addition to, you know, renovating the building, we we do really hope to have some policy wins. So we've developed a, a whole policy platform based on the things that we've found that are problematic. So that Baltimore City should have a ground rent redemption program. There also should be a map so we can see where are all the ground, where are all the unextinguished ground rent, right? When you talk about policies, we're talking about something from before America was even <laughs> America. Right. Still right. can call somebody to lose their property. Like, why do we have colonial, like what? This doesn't make any sense. So, you know, working to bring some of those things from that policy platform into fruition, like, you know, being able to help folks extinguish their ground rent, you know, um, there's definitely, you, we're, we're working with the folks in Poppleton to try to um, keep the Sarah Ann Street houses, um, as well as some others from being demolished for, you know, the Poppleton redevelopment. So those are the things that we're really trying to kind of project for. We're also working with Parity Homes um, to you know, do this thing that we're calling Harlem Park Homecoming, which is a neighborhood adjacent to us, where we're trying to bring, um, you know, a hundred, let's just say, we don't have a real number, folks that are from Baltimore, who's, many of whose families have lost houses due to, you know, tax sale or eminent domain, enable them to be able to come and move into home, you know, to come home to Harlem Park and, and, and live, right? And so those are the things that we're kind of working on as well as a project with the folks um, who are redeveloping the Harlem Theater uh, in Harlem Park. Just a few little projects here and there. You got, you guys- Three little things I'm doing on on the side, you know. (laughs) Just on on the side. Um, It's, I mean, it's truly inspiring work. I'm so glad that we were able to connect and get you on um, and we'll have to bring you back as the app rolls out and things like that. I think it'll be exciting. People will be interested in hearing about it. Um, Before we let you go, uh, we asked this question of everyone. Um, what is your favorite historic place or site? It could be anywhere. You can betray Baltimore. It doesn't have to be in Baltimore. Uh, it can be anything. But what, what's a place that really speaks to you? Oh, that's so funny. I've never betrayed Baltimore. I've never, not doing it. So it's so much rich history, specifically rich Black history in Baltimore. I could not have a favorite historic sh- a single favorite historic structure. So I will give you, I will give you three really quick ones. Okay. Um, the great, uh, the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum is um, one of my favorite, his, what I would call historic structures and is a part of my formative development in my worldview and my philosophy and my understanding of um, the history of the United States specifically, but the history of Black people in that context. The second would be um, the Isaac Myers, Frederick Douglass Museum. And um, I didn't realize until recently that part of the actual dock, I guess, where they caught is still in, you know, still in the harbor. It's in horrible condition. It's blighted, but it's still in the harbor. And so the fact that they started, uh, you know, a, co- a company and that it was a co-op 
which the, you know, as much as we're in the sharing economy now, realizing and connecting the fact that that is, you know, some of our cultural practice and that it was done in a period where people were still, our people were still enslaved is really inspiring. And then the last place is the Harlem Theater, which, um, as I mentioned, we're working with um, Angela Francis and her team to try to redevelop, or not to try, to redevelop (laughs) that There is no try. (laughs) There is no try. uh, (laughs) But to redevelop that building, which was a church at one point, it was a church, then it was a theater, and then it went back to a church, it was full circle, but that we are going to redevelop that to a, you know, innovation, arts, um, community-based space that is, draw again, drawing people back into um, and out of, because there are people living, we always have to say this, the community might be blighted, but there are always people. There are always families. There are always institutions, anchor institutions in these communities. And we can never forget that. So we're drawing people in and out, right? So that we can be in community together because that is our true, that is the true currency is our relationship to to one another. And the spaces are only symbolic of how how we not only are made to feel about ourselves, but how we feel about each other. Well, that's a that's a, a beautiful and a perfect way to end this conversation. If people want to learn more about the organization or uh, hopefully even maybe make a gift in support of the work that they're doing, we will have a link in the show notes. So you can just click the link um, and uh, head right over to their website there. All that information is available um, in the notes on this episode. Um, Nika, it's been really just a pleasure and so inspiring to hear from you and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.